this week at FCPA. Episode 45 for the week ending March 24th, 2017, the Compliance is Good for Business edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I have a wide-ranging discussion on why good compliance is good for business. We highlight the LRN Ethics of Compliance Program Effectiveness Report, which has been recently released. We take a look at last week's announcement of Ethisphere's 2017 World's Most Ethical Companies Awards and Honorees. We have a long discussion about why compliance is good for business. Jay takes a look at a key to organizational diversity, which is women in compliance. He also reports on a recent webinar uh, put on by his colleague, Eric Feldman, on best practices from ECI's Independent Monitor Benchmarking Group. He previews his weekend report. And I talk about a upcoming presentation that I'm going to make at the SCCE European Ethics and Compliance Institute in April, and Jay will talk about a presentation by his colleague, Eric Feldman. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 45 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending March 24th, 2017, the Compliance is Good for Business edition. As always, I'm joined by my cohort and co-host, Jay Rosens, now monikered as Mr. Monitor. Jay, welcome. Good morning, Tom. Great to be speaking to you on this Friday. So uh, I have to assume you, you and the clan survived uh, St. Patrick's Day? Uh, we, we certainly did, yes. <laughs> good, good. So, Jay, we had, uh, we've had a couple of um, reports and uh, other um, articles and information that have come out over the past few weeks, which have really emphasized the importance of compliance in a good business. So I thought we might take this um, episode to really focus on some of the, the things that have come out in uh, the press in blog posts and written reports, and then maybe tie it into some of the things that uh, not only we see in good compliance programs, but uh, some of the things that we're both uh, uh, either our companies or we are talking about over the next few weeks and, and kind of wrap that all together. And I really wanted to, to lead off with the LRN report on uh, ethics and compliance program effectiveness. This is something that uh, I talked about this week in several podcasts, and I had the opportunity to interview Susan Divers, a senior associate or senior advisor at LRN, on their report. And the thing that struck me about the report, Jay, was a couple of things. This report was um, based upon research done by LRN in 2016, but the report in discussing compliance program effectiveness really emphasize the operationalization of your compliance program. And why that struck me so much was that it clearly presaged the Department of Justice's uh, February release of the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, where the DOJ came right out and, and said it is operationalization of your compliance program, which the DOJ will hold uh, very critical in any evaluation. So to have that really presage that in a way um, that helped companies understand how to do that, uh, I thought was uh, very helpful and very useful. The um, report correctly noted that uh, 
Regulators are increasingly demanding that compliance programs reorient focus on ethical culture and behavior and less on adding more layers of rules and procedures. And they, they put it in an interesting way that in many uh, tests of compliance program effectiveness really measure what they called inputs. That could be written inputs, that could be policies, procedures, codes of conduct, those sorts of things. And it's really uh, the DOJ's evaluation and what cons uh, constitutes an effective compliance program really have evolved beyond that, uh, uh, where um, you have to look at how the organization does compliance. And uh, I was incredibly gratified to see that they even said that uh, a key indicia is the level of trust and its acceptance of those employees who speak up uh, in a corporate culture which allows that. The report goes through several different uh, questions and issues that were posed, uh, or rather I should say detailed findings uh, that I'd like to highlight. Uh, number one was the most effective compliance programs are embedded within the business organization. Uh, that, you know, if that doesn't bespeak operationalization, nothing does. The second is that the most successful compliance programs use a variety of channels to convert guidance into practice. And I found this really interesting, Jay, because it talked about, uh, really emphasized when the Department of Justice speaks, when the Securities and Exchange Commission speak, whether it be in the 2012 FCPA guidance, whether it be in the DOJ 2017 evaluation, whether it be uh, Kara Brockmeyer speaking at a conference, Leslie Caldwell, Wei Chin, uh, whatever information the DOJ puts out there, that compliance practitioners convert that guidance into practice so that you actually take um, communications, whether they be oral, written, or other, from the Department of Justice and put them into your compliance program. Next was high-performing compliance programs proactively convert this guidance into practice. And finally, high-performing programs spread their impact broadly recognizing that the whole organization must be engaged in compliance and ethics. That, uh, once again, I, I have to emphasize the Karnak, the magnificence, greatness of this, because that directly ties into the evaluation's point of shared responsibility. Uh, compliance is shared, the responsibility for compliance is shared across an organization and through an organization, and a company must uh, have complete uh, operationalization of compliance in all forms, really, or rather dis corporate disciplines of their business. So this uh, LRN report was uh, very interesting. It um, not only reported the detailed findings that uh, I talked about, but it also gave a, uh, a way forward for a compliance practitioner. And it laid out a six-step process to creating a values-based organization um, so that uh, the compliance practitioner not only has a, a benchmark uh, to look at, but also has a way forward and a roadmap that they can utilize. So uh, kudos to LRN. Uh, check out my blogs and uh, podcasts with Susan Devers. A lot of good stuff in uh, all of the Ethisphere, world's most ethical uh, awards or World's Most Ethical Companies Awards, which was uh, given out last week, I think, in New York City. And here we had 124 companies from five continents, 19 countries, and 52 industries 
given this award by uh, Ethisphere. And Jay, the thing that really struck me here was that uh, if you go to the uh, Ethisphere homepage, which we'll link to in the show notes for the WME award, it clearly shows that ethics is a measurable differentiator of company profitability. There's a couple of charts uh, that show the performance of 2017 world's most ethical company honorees uh, outperformed the S&P over a four-year period by 9.6 of excess returns, and that uh, if you limited that to 2015-2016, uh, there was a 6.4 excess uh, in returns. So that really tells me, Jay, that uh, good compliance is really good for business. So I found uh, both of these things uh, really interesting and that uh, emphasizes something that uh, you and I have certainly talked about over the years, but uh, perhaps we may need to talk about it more, that uh, the bottom line is that compliance is good for the bottom line. And if you do compliance, if you operationalize compliance, if you put compliance, share the responsibility for compliance throughout your organization, not only is there a very good chance you'll be recognized by uh, an outfit such as Ethisphere, but your bottom line will improve. And when you get to uh, business and business processes, that is uh, absolute gold. Yeah, so Tom, uh, it's interesting that we have kind of um, – both these things happening at the same time, that we have, um, you know, this pivot that we're going from the inputs of, you know, asking the questions and answering the surveys to actually going to the outputs and the operationalization and how you just said that good ethics and compliance is good for the bottom line. Uh, do we think that this is just... Um, a maturity of the profession right now? Is it a confluence of events or what do you think is responsible for this listening starting to take hold in, uh, in different camps and coming in from different, uh, you know, different uh, messages and different messengers? So I think that uh, it is uh, somewhat of a maturity. It's uh, in the, um, uh, from Ethisphere, uh, the information they have in, uh, I interviewed um, Erica Salmon Byrne for a podcast that will go up next week about the world's most ethical uh, corporate awards this year. And she emphasized that uh, Ethisphere now has about 10 years of data and so that they can take a look at and, and show how the companies that have won these awards uh, beat the S&P uh, average uh, yearly. And um, so we're, we're getting some data on this. Uh, it, it is somewhat mature maturity, and it's really understanding that <clears throat> uh, I got involved in compliance uh, back in 2007, and it was very much input-driven. It was policies and procedures and thou shalt and thou shalt not. It was largely written by lawyers for lawyers, and there has been an evolution in thinking that you actually have to do compliance. Uh, that's why I called my book on compliance programs, Doing Compliance, because you've got to move compliance out of uh, the legal department and into a standalone function so that you can really move towards operationalize it. The roles of lawyers and compliance officers, or at least the legal function and the compliance function are quite different. The legal function exists to protect the company. Uh, the compliance function exists is to prevent detect and remediate problems that arise. Uh, if you ask a lawyer the question, uh, 
can we do it or should we do it? The answer is going to be, is it legal? If you ask a compliance officer the question, the same question, they're going to say, they're going to look at a variety of factors and say, yeah, it's legal for us to do it, but that doesn't mean we should do it. So they're really a different focus. I think it took uh, some time for that realization to occur. It's not that, um, uh, I'm not sure I would go as far as to say that uh, the input model was wrong at the time. Perhaps it may have required uh, an evolution in maturity, but uh, we are seeing that. And, it, and it's not just from people like you and me. It's not just from people that are a compliance officer. It's also maturity from the regulators. So if you talk to people who practiced in front of the DOJ in 2005, 2007, even 2010, they will tell you the DOJ's expectations of what constituted an effective compliance program is very different than it is now. So the regulatory thinking has changed as well, and it's all contributed to the ball continually moving forward. And Jay, I would even challenge you to think about um, the conversations you had uh, when you started as Mr. Translations and the specific ad hoc conversations that we have this uh, potential issue or this investigation and we need this translation service uh, to the to the spreading of of your message or the maturity of your message that translations really led to or leads to um, moving your culture out into the field and into the business because um, you are talking to people in their native language and you're doing it on a, you're communicating on an ongoing basis you're not giving soviet style training of thou shalt and thou shalt not in english so uh you know i even heard you when i said uh, i've heard you speak about that and, and seen an evolution in uh your thinking at, uh and marketing as well i, I think really all of us would draw upon that experience to, to see maybe how we are uh where we are uh in 2017 on that issue yeah, I think those are all great points. And if, if I can just, you know, add to that a little, um, you know, just thinking back, uh, I probably started uh, doing the ethics and compliance uh, work with my clients and helping them do translations in back about 2008. And you're absolutely correct that we went from these codes of conduct that were, 20 pages long, single space, legalese, lawyerlese, to now coming into more and more codes of conduct that look appealing like an annual report that have examples, that have blowout boxes, that have pictures that try to really, um, you know, operationalize that code of conduct and put it in a, a, a way that can be packaged and easily accessible by folks all over the world. And, you know, I think another thing that probably adds to this is technology that, you know, many companies now have taken their code of conduct and, you know, made it an app and you can actually go in there. And if you're traveling to, uh, you know, the People's Republic of China and you're going there for the Lunar New Year, you can actually type in what is the limit of the gift that I can spend and you will get an answer now. So you'll have... Uh, you know, an automated 24-hour-a-day compliance officer. So there's really no excuse for not being able to access the information. And, you know, it's just incumbent on the individual uh, employee to take that information and to be able to uh, apply the lessons and not the thou shall nots, but 
this is how uh, I react in a situation such as this, and this is something that I've trained upon, and now I'm going to be able to go back into my memory and call up the right answer. So, Jay, if I could, I would just like to highlight um, the uh, framework that uh, Ethisphere uses to evaluate companies for the world's most ethical program, excuse me, world's most ethical award. And they've got five areas that they uh, take a look at. And uh, the first is ethics and compliance, where they actually look at the program to see if a company is doing compliance. The second is corporate citizenship and responsibility. And here they take a look at environmental stewardship, community involvement, diversity, uh, supply chain oversight, uh, the culture of ethics. Is there really a ethical tone from the top and in the middle, which is communicated and measured throughout the organization? In governance, they look at uh, whether or not the board and senior management are really fulfilling their roles in a best practices compliance program. And then leadership, innovation, and reputation. They took a, they take a look at uh, what the company has done to uh, have a demonstrable of uh, compliance and ethical track record, which could include uh, communications going uh, out in the industry, being on the speaker circuit, uh, writing articles for magazines such as SCCE or others, uh, obviously any awards, those sorts of things. So there's a wide variety of factors that uh, Ethisphere looks at. And I wanted to really lead that into uh, something you wanted to highlight for us, which was uh, a blog post in the FCPA blog about women in compliance, a key to organizational diversity. What, did, what really intrigued you about that? Well, I think one of the things that you hit upon in uh, the things that um, Ethisphere was looking at was diversity. And um, this is uh, part two in a series written by our colleague, uh, Julie DeMauro. And she basically said that, um, you know, in looking at the composition of uh, the people who are leading the ethics and compliance practice in your corporation, you really need to reflect the same diversity from those people who are teaching as to those people who are receiving the message. So, you know, she really said that not only the ethics and compliance department, but the board who runs the business, who makes decisions, should be tasked with creating a more diverse leadership team throughout the company. And um, you know, there was an interesting statistic that she said, the survey found that 67% of women and a full 84% of men believe that greater gender diversity depends upon a commitment to it by the top leaders and cultural leaders uh, that, you know, can noticeably foster this. So um, one of the other interesting comments in the remark was uh, from Betsy Blumenthal, who's a senior manager at Kroll. And she said, um, she asked, uh, are there, is there a specific trait that women possess to allow them to do the job? And she said that would be skepticism. And this skepticism can help people or specifically help women dig a bit deeper into something that appears even slightly off. And it's a trait that risk and compliance professionals must have to detect red flags and bad actors. So um, this is an ongoing series. Julie's going to be uh, having another post next week. But uh, I, I just think that that's something that we need to talk about, that, 
in terms of the people, uh, it just can't be, uh, you know, 10 white guys on a board who are making the decisions for the ethics and the compliance of a company. And I think if the people who are delivering the message and making the message reflect the diversity of the workforce, I think it could lead to better results and a better listening. You know, I'd like kind of to wrap all that around uh, Ariane Huffington and her uh, uh, public remarks, I think yesterday, on uh, Uber. She's on the board of Uber, and I found it very interesting that they would uh, put her out in front um, to discuss the changes that Uber is making, uh, the structural changes, the corporate governance changes, and how they are taking many of the things that we talked about on our podcast last week, Jay, uh, very seriously and moving to try to create a better culture at the company so that uh, uh, the company will continue its economic efficiency and profitability, but have the type of culture that will foster uh, greater trust uh, going forward. And I guess maybe if I could kind of end this part, Jay, I would just say that the, the bottom line is that uh, input-driven paper compliance programs, which emphasize policies and procedures, really don't work to operationalize compliance. While written controls can form the and do form the backbone of a compliance program, it is operationalized through the actions of its employees who are largely not in the compliance function. Yet it is those very employees who must do compliance in, in an organization to make it work. So to fully operationalize compliance, employees must trust that senior management will adhere to uh, corporate value of doing business in compliance and that employees will be rewarded for operationalizing compliance and not sanctioned on performance metrics alone. And that's something I've obviously been trying to advocate, but now we've got um, the uh, LRN report talking about enhanced profitability for corporations with high ethical values. We've got the world's most ethical uh, company awards from Ethisphere demonstrating enhanced and increased profitability. And we even had the 2016 Trust Across America report entitled Return on Trust, the State of Trust uh, in 2016 uh, by that organization, uh, which found that uh, performance uh, for companies with a high indicia of trust was uh, better than uh, the average on uh, the S&P scale. So now we have some real numbers which show the, the, the real return on investment for compliance, for ethical values, for trust. And I hope that uh, businesses will now see this really as a, as a market differentiator, uh, but as a key to profitability going forward. So maybe with that, Jay, um, uh, you could uh, tell us about uh, upcoming uh, podcast with uh, Eric Feldman of your group. And the reason that I really wanted to, to emphasize that podcast uh, more than just a, kind of announcing it from your position is this um, concept of having an independent monitor uh, really started as a sanction for companies that had sustained an FCPA violation and got a deferred prosecution agreement. But uh, the monitorship role has evolved far beyond that. Um, affiliated monitors does a wide variety of functions and tasks. And so I thought it would be a good way for you to maybe explain how affiliated monitors can really help a company uh, operationalize compliance simply beyond being a corporate monitor after there's been a deferred prosecution agreement. 
Great. Thank, thanks for, uh, for asking that question, Tom. Uh, the web, webinar actually happened yesterday, okay. and we're going to uh, make available a link on our website, and we can also put it in our show notes when we put up. And um, not only was it my colleague uh, Eric Feldman, but it was also a gentleman named Michael Callens, who's the Associate General Counsel for Ethics and Compliance for ASDEC. And, um, you know, to your point, Tom, really takes a, a very comprehensive look at the whole situation of monitoring and talks about the state of monitoring, whether or not you're going to have a, a government-appointed monitor or if you bring one in your own, the monitor selection process, uh, doing a work plan, addressing issues in dispute, and transitioning off the engagement. So there's... Uh, in addition to the, um, you know, webinar component, there's a really great PowerPoint deck that we can make available. And a couple key points that I wanted to take from uh, Eric's thoughtful comments yesterday is one thing he noticed, and this I think really ties back to the point you said about the, the regulators really setting the tone better, that he said the DOJ is running a more thoughtful process in the selection of monitors and making sure that they're independent and that they lack any conflicts of interest. So in the past, you may have seen certain monitors who were chosen for the matters because they had a, a very high profile, they were in the government, they were a former AG. But right now, um, you know, Wei Chen and, and the group at the DOJ are making real thoughtful decisions and they want to make sure that uh, a monitor is set up to succeed. And you know what some people may or may not realize is that the process in engaging a monitor, the company uh, will put up three different choices and propose those to the DOJ. And the DOJ will either select one of those monitors or ask for another list. So. Um, although uh, the condition of a, a federally mandated monitor is that, you know, the company has, uh, you know, done something that needs to be remediated, at the end of the day, the monitor is put forth by the company, the company pays for the monitor, and the monitor there is to work for the company's benefit. So a lot of... Uh, there, there needs to be buy-in for this situation to work, and sometimes um, the company may be in a position where they're not really open to accept what the monitor can do there. And the monitor is, although they're at the uh, you know direction of the government, the monitor is there really to help the client succeed, not only to remediate in the present. But to lay that cultural, um, you know, framework for the company to succeed moving forward. And as Eric kind of wrapped things up, he said yesterday that a good monitor is there to bridge the gap between the company and the government. So I, I think it is um, a really informative webcast, and I look forward to making those materials available to everyone uh, as soon as they're posted on the ECI website. So um, I guess, Jay, to end, uh, I'm going to just give a slight preview of, um, or for my ending, slight preview of a session I'm putting on at the uh, European Compliance and Ethics Institute for SCCE in April. I'm uh, joined by Jenny O'Brien and Roy Snell. They're going to talk about 
influence and how a chief compliance officer can really uh, needs to utilize influence. But I'm going to talk about expanding the message, the the geography of a message through this use of social media. So it's going to be a very interesting uh, presentation by the three of us. And maybe to end, Jay, I was wondering if you could give us a, a little hint of the Jay Rosen Weekend Report. Uh, be happy to. I'm, I'm finally over the um, euphoria of the Patriots Super Bowl victory. So I decided um, I would turn my attention towards spring training. And um, specifically, I want to talk about uh, situational spring training and how you can look at, uh, you know, when we get down into crunch time in October and November, if uh, somebody bunts and the ball gets caught between the pitcher and the catcher, they need to know whose ball that is and where they go with it. And that's the kind of situational spring training that I would like to take a look at and, and take a look at that from an ethics and compliance uh, perspective and how that spring training can be more operationalized in the business. So um, that's what the uh, the weekend review is going to uh, take a look at. And then I also wanted to give a, a plug for um, the SCCE event in Prague on April 4th. Uh, my colleague, uh, Eric Feldman, who we just spoke about, he will be doing a presentation uh, called Building Effective Ethics and Compliance Programs Globally, the Value of Independent Assessments and Evaluation. And he will be joined by Tom Topolsky, who's the president of international for Louis Berger. So uh, I know uh, Eric will be there. You'll be there. Jonathan Armstrong, uh, Christy Grant Hart. So it'll be uh, a real great gathering of uh, ethics and compliance uh, leaders in Prague in a couple weeks. So Jay, that brings us to the end of uh, episode 45. Uh, I hope you've got the, the twins teed up for uh, episode 50. Uh, we really want to celebrate that one, but uh, why don't you take us home? Great. Well, everyone, uh, thank you so much again for joining Tom and myself uh, as we discuss the FCPA week that was for the week ending March 24th, 2017. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.